thought about calling this sermon, How to Avoid Being Eaten by Worms. But then I thought better of it. If uh, you're new here or if you haven't been around for a little while, we are working our way through the book of Acts. Now, Acts tells us the story of the early church. And today we come to chapter 12. And I, I said to you a few weeks, a weeks ago that there are a few different ways for you to do a U-turn, to turn around. You can do it suddenly, dramatically, or you can do it gradually and slowly. Well, there are also a few different ways to put out a fire. Many of them are safe and sensible. So, for example, if you have a small fire in the kitchen, you can cover it up with a, a stove lid, a, a pot lid or something like that and suffocate it. Or you can use a fire extinguisher. If you have a campfire, you can just kind of slowly let it burn down and eventually burn out. Or you can gently pour some water into the middle of it. They're safe and sensible methods. Other methods, though, are not quite as sensible. For example, you shouldn't do what a group of us boys did many, many years ago when we were very young and immature and we were on a cadet camp. Let's just say we tried to put the fire out by sprinkling on it. <laughs> and I can confirm that it was neither safe nor effective. Another ineffective way to put out a fire is to blow on it, or to swat at it, or to kick at it. In fact, if you try to put out a fire that way, you won't actually put out the fire, you'll just spread the fire. You'll do the opposite of what you intended to do. And the reason I bring this up is because there is a similar dynamic when it comes to the Christian church. See, many people throughout history have wanted to put out the Christian church. They've wanted to put a stop to the Christian faith. But what we've seen again and again throughout history is that the more the church has been kicked, the more it's spread. The more people have tried to stop it, the more it's multiplied and grown. This is why uh, Tertullian, who was a church father in the second century, he said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. This is why early Christians in Rome, they went from being killed in the Colosseum in Rome to Christianity becoming the official religion of the Roman Empire. Or to use a more modern example, consider Albania. You might not know this, but Albania was the first uh, official atheist country. In the 1980s in Albania, religion was outlawed. If you made the sign of the cross, you would get three years in prison. If you owned a Bible, that would be five years in prison. Today, in Albania, a little over 40 years later, Christianity is growing at twice the rate of the global average. The more the church is kicked, the more it spreads. And we see this dynamic in the book of Acts as well. We've already seen it in chapter 6 when Saul tried to put a stop to the church and he just spread the church. And we see it again today in chapter 12. King Herod, the Roman ruler of the region, he goes after the leadership of the church. He has one of the apostles killed and then he arrests another. But it doesn't stop or, or slow down or even silence the church. Instead, the church grows and the gospel spreads. See, this chapter is going to teach us a valuable lesson about the powerful sovereignty of God. 
This uh, chapter is going to show us the fulfillment of Jesus' promise. Remember when he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So if you're a Christian, I hope that this story kind of fills you with hope and confidence. I hope it puts steel in the spine of your faith. If you're not a Christian, we're so glad that you're here today. And I hope that this story shows you that to oppose God is futile and foolish. Now, you might say, well, Adam, I'm not a believer, but I'm not opposing God. I'm not trying to stop the church. I mean, heck, I'm even in church. And we're so glad you're here. But do you remember what Jesus said? He said, anyone who is not with me is against me. See, there's plenty of space to explore the claims of Jesus, to think about it, to to look at who he is and what he said. But at some point, you have to make a decision. At some point, you have to get off the fence. And today, I hope that that might be the day for you. So let's uh, dive into this story together. I'd like to look at it under four headings. Last week, you let me get away with five. I didn't think I could do that two weeks in a row, so we're reining it back into four. I actually heard uh, Guy Mason from City on a Hill kind of frame the story this way, and I thought it was helpful, so I'm going to share it with you as well. Number one, the first thing we see in verses one to four is the violent hands of Herod. See, as chapter 12 begins, the focus moves from Antioch, which is where we were last week, the, the pagan city, the Gentile city, the focus comes back to Jerusalem. We're back in Jerusalem, and we're introduced to a new persecutor of the church. Look at verse 1 of chapter 12. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. So Herod, the Roman-appointed ruler over the region of Judea and beyond, you can kind of see uh, Herod's uh, territory on the map on the screen. He ruled over Idumea, Judea, Samaria, Galilee. That was all of his region. He now begins to turn his attention to the Christian church. Now, if you're kind of familiar with the Bible, if you've read through the Bible, you might be thinking, yeah, which Herod? I mean, Herod is one of those names that pops up, and the New Testament actually gives us five different Herods. There's Herod the Great. He's the one we hear about every Christmas, the one that killed all the baby boys in Jerusalem. He was followed by Herod Archelaus. He didn't last very long. He wasn't very good. He's mentioned only once. Then he was followed by Herod Antipas. He was the one that had John the Baptist beheaded. You remember the story? Then he was followed by Herod Agrippa I. And this is the Herod that we meet here in Acts chapter 12. He would be followed by Herod Agrippa II, and we'll meet him a little bit later in the book of Acts. So Herod Agrippa I turns his attention to the church. Now, why does he do this? Well, the Christian church was probably, or it was, a disruptive element in his region. The Jewish people were getting riled up about the Christian church, and it was important for Herod to keep the peace, to keep the Jewish people happy, to keep them under his thumb. And so he turns his attention to this renegade Jesus movement, and he tries to cut the head off the snake. He goes after the apostles. We're told there that he has James killed. It says he was killed by the sword, which means likely he was beheaded. Now, James, one of the sons of thunder, you remember that in the Gospels, James and John, the sons of thunder, he was one of Jesus' disciples, part of Jesus' inner circle, and a leader in the early church. And he is the first of the apostles to be put to death. Now, you can imagine how this landed on the church. 
one of their prominent leaders is killed violently. You can imagine the kind of impact this had on the church, especially on his brother John, who was also an apostle. Sadly, it's just the beginning. Look at verses 3 and 4. And when Herod saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread, which was a a week-long Jewish feast. And when he had seized Peter, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him. That's 16 soldiers in total to guard this one man. I think Herod remembered that Peter's already been in prison twice in the book of Acts, and he's escaped and been delivered both times. And he's saying, you're not getting out this time, buddy. He intending, after the Passover, to bring him out to the people. So these are dark days for the church. The most powerful man in the region has turned his attention on the church, laid his hands on the church. Now, what was this little group of Jesus followers going to do? How are they going to stand up to the might of the Roman Empire? What would you do? How would you respond? Now, we might not face... exactly the same situation that the early church was facing, but we too face situations in life that look too big for us. Might be the death of a loved one. We've had a number of those this year. Might be a cancer diagnosis, or an inability to conceive, or to find a job, or or a, a crippling addiction, a damaged relationship, a changing culture. I mean, there are so many things we face that look bigger than us. I remember the first day I sat in the chair behind John's desk. John was the the senior pastor before me. And I remember the first day I sat in the chair at his desk. And I just thought to myself, what have I got myself into? How did I end up here? What do you do when life seems too big for you to handle? For the believers in Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem, they turned, as John Stott says, I love this, to the only power which the powerless possess. To the only power which the powerless possess. And this brings us to the second movement in the story, which is the desperate hands of prayer. Look at verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. And so the response of the church is not to sharpen their swords. It's not to fight fire with fire. It's not to get revenge. The response of the church is to get on their knees and to pray. And notice that this is not kind of polite, perfunctory prayer. Dear Lord, please save Peter and please bless us. Amen. This is earnest prayer. This is the same word used to describe the prayer of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he was sweating drops of blood the night before he went to the cross, they're praying desperately because desperate times call for desperate prayer. Now, I I don't think this means that we must pray desperately all the time. I don't think that's the, the lesson for us here. In fact, Jesus kind of says that there's a way to pray desperately, which looks more like paganism than Christianity. Here's what he said in Matthew 6. He says, when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Jesus says, do not be like them, 
For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Jesus says, when we pray, we don't have to beg God. We can come before Him knowing that He's a good Father who knows what we need. But I do think the question we need to ask ourselves here is this. When times are desperate, where do you turn? When life seems out of control, when the challenges seem too big for you, where do you go? Do you turn to yourself? I'll sort this out. I can fix this. Or or do you turn to a substance, or a screen, or a person? Or do you turn to God in desperate prayer? Now, you might say to me, Adam, I've turned to God in those moments before. I've been, been desperate, and I desperately cried out to God, but he seemed to ignore me. He didn't seem to answer me, at least not in the way that I asked him to. Well, we see this reality even here in this story. I don't mean to to spoil the rest of the story, but Peter eventually is dramatically rescued from prison. But what about James? You know, I'm sure that when James was arrested, grabbed by Herod, I'm sure the church prayed desperately for him. So why does Peter lose his chains, but James lose his head? Well, the story actually doesn't tell us why. Instead, the story gives us a who. It gives us a God who is sovereign, a God who is at work behind the scenes, a God who works both in life and in death. This is why the writer of Hebrews in chapter 11, in this great catalogue of faith, he gets towards the end of the chapter and he says in verse 34, by faith... Some of these people that have loved God and be faithful to God, they have escaped the edge of the sword. They've been rescued. They've been delivered. But then just a couple of verses later, he says, others, by faith, were killed with the sword. Some escaped. Some did not. And the difference was not the love of God. The difference was not a lack of faith. Both were living by faith. The difference was the plan and the purpose of God. Some glorified God by their life, and others glorified God by their death. They both glorified God because he is sovereign over all. See, when we we talk about the sovereignty of God, we're saying God sees things that we don't see. God knows things that we don't know. God has a power that we don't have. God has a script that we can't see. The only script that we have, which is the only script we need, are the scriptures. And you see, they show us a God who is wise, a God who is good, a God who is powerful, so that when we don't understand, so that when we can't trace God's hand in what we're going through, we can continue to trust his heart. Charles Spurgeon put it this way, he said, when you go through a trial, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which you lay your head. Many of you know uh, Corrie ten Boom. Corrie was a Dutch lady that survived uh, World War II and the horrors of Ravensbrück concentration camp. And after the war, Corrie would go around traveling, kind of sharing her experiences. And, and often she would end her talks with this poem. This is a lady that has endured, you know, unimaginable suffering. She says this. She says, my life is but a weaving between my God and me. I do not choose the colors 
he works so steadily. Oftentimes he weaves in sorrow, and I in foolish pride. Forget he sees the upper, and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly will God unroll the canvas and explain the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. Now you might say, if God is sovereign, if God is in control, if God has a script that you and I cannot see, then then do our prayers really matter? Should we bother? Well, they certainly mattered for Peter. And this brings us to the third movement in the story, which is the gracious hands of rescue. The violent hands of Herod, the desperate hands of prayer, and the gracious hands of rescue. The focus of the story now shifts to to Peter languishing in prison. Look at verse 6. Now, when Herod was about to bring Peter out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. Now, notice how closely Peter is being guarded. He's sleeping between two soldiers. If you have not one, but two guards in bed with you, you know that you're being guarded closely. Notice also that Peter's demise was imminent. Herod was going to bring him out that very night. He was about to die. He's a wild animal caught in a trap. And so what is Peter doing? Is he pacing around the cell? Is he bargaining with the soldiers to let him go? Is he praying? He's sleeping. It's the last night of his life and he's getting some shut eye. Peter, it seems, was able to put his head on that pillow that Charles Spurgeon described, the pillow of God's sovereignty. But I don't think even Peter could could imagine what was about to happen next. I, I won't read the verses, but basically an angel, a divine messenger, appears in Peter's cell. And it says that Peter was sleeping so deeply, he, he struck him on the side to wake him up. Literally, he kicked him in the guts. Some of you have teenagers that you need to do that to every Monday morning. Peter wakes up, his chains miraculously fall off. The angel tells him to get dressed and to follow him, and they, they stumble out through the doors. Peter thinks he's having a dream. He, he doesn't know if it's really happening. And so they finally get out into the the city streets, they come to a gate, and this massive iron gate kind of magically opens like this automatic door at the shops, they they enter in, the angel leaves, and Peter's head must have been spinning. He's in prison just a few hours ago, he's asleep, doomed to die, and now he's awake, he's alive, and he's free. And I love Peter's response, verse 11, he says, now I am sure. I thought I was dreaming before, but now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. He gives God all the glory. He says, I've been rescued by God. It, was, it had nothing to do with me. I just kind of followed the angel. I just kind of walked through the doors that were opened for me. And friends, isn't this a picture of our salvation? Isn't this a picture of our rescue? I mean, we too were in a hopeless situation, enslaved to to sin and to death with no way of rescuing ourselves. But God in Christ has set us free. 
in Christ, we've been set free from the judgment of God. We've been set free from the penalty of our sin, from the weight of guilt, from the power of death, from the dominion of the evil one, from the idolatry of self. We've been set free from all these things and more. In fact, I read a a letter this week, which was from a, a prisoner in Pakistan, written to a believer on the outside. Listen to this. It says, Dear Mr. Masih, I got the Bible and your letter. I have read more in this month in the Bible than I've read in all my life outside. I've even tried praying for the first time. And I took your advice and asked God to forgive me and take away that feeling that makes me want to kill all those people. I could never sleep because I stayed awake planning escapes and figuring out how I could kill everyone I hated and blamed. I planned to kill every witness who appeared in court against me. But now I have learned the Jesus secret of forgiveness. I had not really understood that I had to forgive those I hated. And then I received God's pardon. Now I sleep like a child at night. I may be in prison all my life, but in my heart, I am free. I even like to sing now. Thanks for the wonderful gift of the Bible. If I ever get out, I will come to visit you. I love you. Greetings and heartfelt thanks, JB. P.S. I wish other prisoners could know what I have discovered. Or as Jesus put it, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Peter has been rescued from prison. And the first thing he does is he goes to the house of Mary. Now, if you think five Herods in the Bible are confusing, there is about 50 Marys. Now, this Mary is the mother of a man named John Mark. Actually, the same Mark that would write Mark's gospel. And apparently, Mary's home was quite a large home. It was a a gathering place for the early church. And so this is where Peter goes. And what happens next is just pretty funny. Did you know that sometimes the Bible is funny? Well, it's funny here. Because we're told in verse 12 that when Peter arrives at Mary's home, there's many people gathered there. They're all praying. It's the middle of the night, but they're still praying. And you can kind of imagine the scene that they're there, they're praying, please save Peter, Lord, please rescue Peter. We don't want Peter to die like James. We need Peter. And then they hear, a few eyes maybe open, but but keep praying. Please, Lord, save Peter, save Peter. They look around, well, isn't somebody going to go get that? And so so Mary looks at Rhoda, who's a, a servant girl, and says, well, can you go answer the door? Rhoda goes down and she hears someone at the door. Hello, is anyone there? let me in. Anybody there? She's like, I know that voice. That's Peter. And she's so happy. She's so surprised. She's so shocked. She turns around. She runs upstairs without even opening the door. And Peter is left on the doorstep outside, which is not ideal if you've just escaped from prison. And so Rhoda bursts back into the prayer meeting. They're continuing to pray, Lord, please save Peter. Please save Peter. And Rhoda bursts in. Your prayers have been answered. God has rescued Peter. He's at the door. And of course, all these devoted believers, these prayer warriors, they burst out in song and praise. God's answered our prayers. Wonderful. That's not quite what happens. Verse 15. They said to her, you are out of your mind. You're crazy. You're deluded. You are delirious. 
Peter can't be at the door. Peter's in prison. That's why we're praying for him. Rhoda, sit down and, and just keep praying for Peter. But she doesn't sit down. She keeps insisting. And they keep insisting that Peter's not there. You're crazy, girl. You're having a dream. Now, grasp the irony of the situation. These prayer warriors don't believe in the power of prayer. This group of believers who are praying desperately, they don't actually believe it when their desperate prayers are answered. Now, before we look down on them, let's just be honest for a moment. Have you ever prayed a desperate prayer which deep down you didn't really think would be answered? Maybe it was for healing or or for a restored relationship or or deliverance from an addiction or the, the Brisbane Broncos to win another premiership. Please, Lord, please. I mean, you might have prayed boldly for these things, but deep down there's a seed of doubt. We've all been there, haven't we? And this is why this scene is helpful, because it shows us that these early believers weren't some kind of super Christians. They were believers just like you and me. And it shows us that, as Guy Mason says, their doubt was not a deal breaker for God. God's not looking down on this scene going, oh, I sense a little bit of doubt in that room. They don't really believe what they're praying. I'm not going to answer their prayers. Their doubt was not a deal breaker for God. And this means even when we're wrestling with doubt, even when we're struggling to truly believe, we keep pressing in, we keep trusting God, we keep praying, knowing that we are approaching a Father who does not answer our prayers according to the strength of our faith or according to the sincerity of our requests, but according to the strength of His love. And the wisdom of his sovereignty. Now, now getting back to Peter, poor old Peter, fugitive on the run, just broke free from prison and he's been left outside. So he keeps on knocking. Eventually they all come down, they open the door, they're amazed, Peter's there. He tells them the story, he tells them to go and tell the other apostles and then he disappears and goes into hiding. Now, you can imagine what happened when Herod finds out. Herod, who put 16 soldiers on him, who had two guards in bed with him. Peter's escaped. He's furious, and he has all of the guards put to death. And then he goes from Jerusalem, and he goes to Caesarea. And it brings us to the final scene in this passage, which is the sovereign hand of God. See, there's this slightly unusual story at the end where there's these two cities, Tyre and Sidon. You can see them on the map. They're on the coast near the Mediterranean Sea. Now, they depended upon Galilee for their food. Galilee was in Herod's jurisdiction. And Herod apparently was mad at these two cities, Tyre and Sidon. Herod always seems to be mad about something. And so these two cities need to get back into Herod's good books, so they persuade this government official named Blastus, which, by the way, is a great name. If you're having a boy, you know, anytime in the future, call him Blastus. He'll love you for the, at least the first 12 years of his life. <laughs> Maybe not so much after that, but... They persuade Blastus to present their case to Herod. The day arrives, the people gather, Herod sits on the throne... And they begin to chant, wanting to get into Herod's good books. The voice of a God, not a man. The voice of a God, not a man. And, and of course, Herod says, oh, no, 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 stop that. Not me. That's, that's not me. He doesn't do that. He laps it up. He loves it. 
and then the story takes a dramatic twist. Look at verse 23. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down. The same word with, with the angel struck Peter on the side to wake him up. The angel now strikes Herod. And we said, because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Now, interestingly, there's a Jewish historian, not a Christian, not a believer, named Josephus. And he actually records this same event in great detail. If you'd like to read it, you can just Google Josephus and, and you can find it. But Luke doesn't go into as much detail because Luke just wants to make one single point, And that's Herod experienced God's judgment. The one who was violently opposing God, he is ultimately judged by God. And, and think about the reversal that we've seen in this chapter. I mean, the chapter begins with Herod large and in charge. He has killed James, he's arrested Peter. It looks like he's going to bring an end to the church. But then you get to the end of the chapter, and Peter is set free, and Herod is in the ground. Herod has been stopped, but the gospel goes forward. Look at how the chapter ends, verse 24, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Because the sovereign hand of God is at work. The most powerful hand in the universe is with the church. Now, how encouraging is this for you and for me? If you belong to the church of the Lord Jesus, you belong to the one group in this world which will never be stopped and will never end. Because Jesus is with us and he'll never let us go. In fact, notice the differences between Herod and Jesus. I mean, Herod was not God, but received praise as if he was God. Jesus was God but humbled himself and glorified his Father in heaven. Herod laid violent hands on others, and Jesus used his hands to heal and to help others. Herod caused his enemies to suffer. Jesus suffered for his enemies. Herod dressed like a king in royal robes. Jesus was stripped of his robes on the cross for you and for me. Herod died and was eaten by worms. Jesus rose again and ascended into glory. And he now reigns and rules from heaven with all authority, with all power, for the good of his church. And this is why it doesn't matter how much the church is kicked. It won't ultimately be stopped it will just continue to spread. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are at work among your people for our good and for your glory. Thank you that you have promised to never leave us or forsake us. Thank you that all authority in heaven and on earth is yours. And no matter what happens in our lives, Lord, when we can't trace your hand, when we don't understand, Lord, help us to trust your heart. Help us to look to Jesus. And help us to see the depth of your love, which has been proven to us and shown to us on the cross. 
and thank you, Lord, that we belong to you, that nothing and no one can separate us from your love, and nothing and no one can stop or thwart your plans and your purposes. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.